0: John chapter 14. Uh, This morning we're going to consider verses 18 through 24. Passage can be found on page 901 in the Pew Bible. It is good to be back with you all. It was a good but wild vacation, a vomit vacation. Uh, but all are now well, for which we are very thankful. I was texting Tabitha in the middle. What do we do, Tabitha? Uh, thank you all for your prayers. Uh, but the nature of this last vacation did help us consider some important questions. First and foremost, why do we go on vacation at all? What is the purpose of vacation? Well, I think that ultimately the answer has to be happiness. Why do any of us go on vacation? Well, because we believe it will help our happiness. We know that work is good. But as Peter showed us from Psalm 90 two weeks ago, work is also toilsome and tiresome. Uh, the occasional rest and disconnect from that work, we believe, will help our happiness. For us, we believe that family's good. We're far from our family, and so we believe that seeing our family will help our happiness, and it'll be good for our happiness. Vacation is about the pursuit of happiness. We were driving back home on Tuesday And on I-81, when you cross over from Maryland to Pennsylvania, the big blue Welcome to Pennsylvania sign says, Pursue Your Happiness. Corinne, a resident Pennsylvanian, knows it well. Now, I'm not sure if anyone is thinking about pursuing their happiness in the middle of an 11-hour drive with five children, but they are clearly there playing off of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain un- uh, unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, there's no question that what the original authors of the Declaration meant by pursuit of happiness is a bit different than what is meant today by the pursuit of your happiness. That, that little your is a big difference but this is a big important question where do you believe that you will find your happiness i never get to preach the first sermon of the year but this is my first sermon of the new year and at the beginning of a year we tend to look ahead we make plans we set goals maybe we have some resolutions well all of them are ultimately about happiness They are about what we believe will bring us happiness, and so we're going to make these different changes and resolve to do these things to better pursue our happiness. The New York Times is the most read newspaper in the world, and it's not even close, and so while I disagree with a lot of it, I still keep an eye on it, and the subject line of its daily email on January 1st was, a happier new year. And the email was building uh, all off of this new book that just came out this week that's called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Uh, So for over 80 years up at Harvard, researchers have been studying what is it that really makes people truly happy. And they have come to one overwhelming conclusion, and the book is all about this one conclusion. And their one conclusion is relationship, strong relationship. Healthy, intimate relationships are the single most important factor in determining happiness. No argument here. That's why we are working on small groups. That's why we're emphasizing our need to be together, pray together, know one another, care for one another. But that is not what I want to talk about this morning as we ease into this new year. The secular scientific world can recognize that relationships are the key to happiness even though they cannot really explain why. Well, we can, and it is only because of how we were created and why we were created and who we were created by and for. It is only because of the first and foundational relationship. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. If earthly happiness is largely bound up in relationships with other people, how much more then is eternal happiness happiness going to be bound up in relationship with the lord of life who has just told us in john 10, 10 that he has come that we may have life and have it abundantly who has just told us that he has come that his joy may be in us and our joy may be full or he's about to tell us that that's john fifteen eleven. so what do you want this year I have running goals, I have reading goals, I have family goals, I have church goals, I have all kinds of goals. What are your goals? What's the main one? What are you pursuing, believing that it will bring your happiness? All I want to do this morning is to encourage you to believe that your happiness is found only in the Lord. And then to encourage you to passionately pursue your happiness by passionately pursuing the Lord in twenty. 23. And this text is perfect for that. And why is that? Well, it's because of what Christ promises us here. And in the spirit of Pennsylvania, let's consider this text in terms of pursuit. You are going to pursue happiness in some way this year. Do it like this. Point number one, we're going to start off with the big main idea. Pursue your happiness in God's presence that is the overwhelming uh, idea of this text. Number 2, we're going to see the how pursue God's presence presence through God's spirit. Okay, what really does that mean? Let's continue on with the how point number 3. Pursue God's presence through God's word. So here's the sermon, big idea. You will only find true happiness in God's presence by God's spirit through God's word. Get one thing, that's the idea. You will only find Happiness in God's presence, by God's spirit, through God's word. All right, let's read the text and see if this is there at all. John chapter 14. I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 15 to ease us into our text. though we're going to focus on 18 through 24. So John 14, starting in verse 15, please pay attention. This is what God himself wants to say to you today. Jesus says, if you love me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Stop there. If you would bow with me, let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that especially in this text that is ultimately all about your Holy Spirit, that our only hope in these minutes to come is for your Spirit now to work through your word. Father, we are in your presence, whether we know it or not, whether we uh, feel it or not. Father, you are here and you are with us. You are present by your Spirit through your word in the midst of your people. Father, help us to realize your presence with us. Help us to realize the privilege of your presence with us. Father, as we are still looking ahead, looking back and looking ahead, as we are considering what it is that we believe we will um, find our happiness in, uh, Father, I pray that you would convince us this morning from this text that you are life itself, that you are happiness and joy and peace, and that those things are ultimately found only in you. Father, we are so constantly pulled away from that one basic fundamental idea, so constantly tempted to find our happiness elsewhere. Father, arrest our attention with your word. Fix our eyes on Jesus Christ by your spirit and convince us and compel us to pursue him with all that we have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, pursue your happiness in God's presence. Pennsylvania's nickname is the Keystone State. I was thinking about this as we're driving. It's a bit of an arrogant claim, actually, the Keystone State. Uh, the Keystone, architecturally, is the, the, the central main stone at the top of an arch. You have an arch, uh, all these different stones held together. The Keystone is the one in the top and in the middle, and it's the one upon which all the other stones depend. The, the Keystone holds all the other stones together. And so we're not sure how this nickname originated. Maybe it's because in the original, 13 colonies, you have six above and six below Pennsylvania, so it's in the center. Many think it's because Pennsylvania thought that it played the key central role in the founding of our country. It's the keystone state. Either way, this first point is the keystone idea of our text, and I want to argue this morning should be a or the keystone idea of your year and your life. You are going to pursue happiness somewhere. This is the only where in which true eternal happiness is found in the presence of God himself. We see the main idea of the passage in this most precious of promises in verse 18. Look at it. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. All right, that, that's the promised presence. But first, context And review. Remember all the way back to 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is hours away from his betrayal. Only a few hours more away from his death. He is preparing the disciples whom he loved, 13 verse 1, for that impending death. He has told them that he's departing and they are understandably distraught. They've lived the last three years of their life in relationship. With Jesus, And if, if happiness is found in relationship, what hope is there for happiness in the absence of the relationship with this one whom they most loved? That's what Christ is addressing. He is comforting them by teaching them. He is encouraging them by explaining to them why he is departing and what will actually happen when he does. There is trouble looming and he is preparing them to face that trouble. And as we've been seeing again and again and again, life is trouble. You're either facing it right now or you've just come out of that trouble or that new trouble is coming soon. Jesus is going to say in 1633, in this world you will have tribulation or trouble. And so how can we find happiness in a world where trouble is almost always present? Well, only in the Lord who is always present. And so Jesus tells them that he will not leave them as orphans. There was no no class of people, especially 2,000 years ago, that was more helpless, uh, more destitute, more in danger than orphans. So he says, I will not leave you as that. I will come to you. Look at verse 19. Right now we're simply looking at the what of God's presence. We'll consider the how in point 2. 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And there's there's presence. They are seeing him because he is with them. They are seeing him because he will come to them. Skip the end of verse 19. Look at verse 20. What a promise this one is. Pay attention here. Here is happiness. Why do I not get more excited about this? And don't miss the one, two, three repeated preposition In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Stop there. It's an important word, that little in. Three times, in, in, in. You could call in the preposition of intimacy. It is the preposition of position or place. Jesus is saying that our position or place is that we are in him and in some way he is in us. And even better, in some way, the way that we are in the Son and the Son is in us parallels the very way in which the Son is in the Father. There is no more intimate Relationship. There is, there is no more personal presence than this. And so this, this is everything. Right? This is who we are. This is what it means to be a believer. Remember, Paul never calls us Christians. He calls us those who are in Christ. He uses that phrase some 165 times in his letters. And we refer to this as our union with Christ. And we must rediscover this reality. John Owen says that union with Christ is the great, most honorable, most glorious of all graces that we are made partakers of. John Calvin says this union must be given the highest degree of attention and importance. John Murray says that nothing is more central or basic than our union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Three Johns, three different centuries, all in agreement. Salvation itself, the very good news of the gospel, is our graciously given union with Christ. We talk mostly about justification. Good, of course we should. That that is so important. We cannot emphasize that too much. But we can't miss this thing. The justification is actually a fruit of the union. Everything flows from all the blessings depend upon this. We are in him and he is in us. And thus, he is very much present with us always that's what this whole thing is about this is not just believing some stuff about jesus not just getting our sins forgiven not just living a moral life but christianity is god himself with us and in us it is the life of god himself in the soul of man god's life in us giving us life We'll consider this in more detail coming up in John 15. Abide in me, and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. See, there's the intimacy and the union and the connection. A branch gets its very life from being attached to the vine. They are, in a sense, one. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What, what is this rich, glorious mystery of the gospel? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is the glorious Mystery And on and on and on we could go with the scriptures. This is who you are and what you are for. And this is how Christ is comforting his troubled disciples and comforting you. I will come to you. I will be with you. I will be in you. And now look at verse 23. Because it just keeps getting better. We're going to come to all the loving and keeping and word in point number three. For now, focus on the promise. Look at the end of 23. And we, the Father and the Son, will come to him and make our home with him. And it, here is a mystery it is almost impossible to explain. If you don't know this, if you haven't begun to experience this by the grace of God, it's really hard to put into words what this really means. But he says, we will come to you and make our home with him. Home. And, and home is Happiness. Vacation with five kids is never particularly restful, but it's, again, it's not supposed to be because it's about them and it's for them. It would be much easier and more restful just to stay at home, but the work of the trip is worth it for them. But driving back Tuesday, Melissa and I were talking about home and we we're hopeful and encouraged because it will be good to get home because for us, by the grace of God, home is, home is restful. There's more rest at home than there is on vacation. Home is happiness. And now listen, I know that this tragically isn't the case for everyone. But that should actually make this reality all the more needful and precious. Because home is meant to be a place of safety and security. Where you know and are known. Where you love and are loved. Where you can rest and rejoice. It is meant to be the place of the most intimate of relationships. And remember, relationship is happiness. So home is happiness. And here, in this amazingly mysterious and wonderful way, Jesus says that God himself, Father, Son, will come and make his home with us. And it's even more wonderful when we realize that we've just read this same word, home. This word, home, is only used twice in this gospel, and both of them are in this chapter. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 14. Remember, Jesus has said, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. Well, that rooms is actually the same word translated in our verse as homes. So it often it's translated, In my house are many dwelling places. Or in my Father's house are many homes. Jesus tells us there in verse 2 that he's preparing for us a place there, a home in heaven. I think what makes heaven, heaven, is that God is there and that we are with him, relationship, happiness. And now what Jesus says here in verse 23 is that we can experience that very heavenly home, him, we with him and he with us, now. Heaven begins now. Our experience of that fellowship begins now in this present life. We are home with him and he is home in us. Again, so much just stretches and boggles the mind. This concept is still somewhat foreign to us. But that's why we must consider these precious promises and pursue the reality of them all the more. For happiness is what we are all after. And Jesus is telling us here very clearly that it's found only in him, in the very presence of God, knowing him and being known by him. That's happiness. Now, hold on a second. Hopefully you have being taught and, and trained uh, the importance of expositional preaching that my ideas are supposed to come to the text. I'm only simply to take the text and explain to you what the text says. So, why happiness? Why, why am I talking about happiness at all? Where is happiness in our text? Don't see the word anywhere in our text. And so that, that's a good question, And so I would argue that the happiness actually is all over the place, though the word is never used. And I would argue first uh, about that from the prevalence of the word love in our text. Look at the previous phrase in verse 23. Again, these promises of Jesus. Look at what he's promising. My father will love him. Verse 21, same thing. Loved by my father. There are seven loves in our text there's eight of them if you include verse 15 and it is in love in being loved that we find happiness we all want to be known and loved we were created to be known and loved and jesus is telling us here that we can be loved by god himself and that love is where you will find happiness and well, this part seems almost too obvious to state, but we also, of course, only find happiness in life. There can be no happiness in death. For sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and the wages of sin is death. There can be no happiness in that which is death. As someone who obviously struggles with succinctness, I really love the shorter catechism. Question 14, what is death? Sin. It would take me months to explain that. What is sin? Sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. Question 17. What happened to man in the fall? Man fell into a condition of sin and misery. I want to drill that misery word into your head. Church, sin is misery. We need to believe that if we are ever going to put sin to death. And pursue the holiness that is happiness. All sin is always misery. In your pursuit of happiness, stop foolishly pursuing it through that which is only misery. No sin will ever satisfy you. No sin will ever bring the thing that you... Every time you sin, you're thinking, I'm going to do this thing because I think, I think this will actually satisfy me and make me happy. And it's a lie. It never will. And it's actually even worse than that because it gives you that temporary hit of the happiness to grab you and to catch you and to hold you while killing you all at the same time. No sin satisfies. No sin will make you happy. We so underestimate the poison of sin and so overestimate its pleasure. We must see all sin as only and always misery. It will never deliver what you're after. Question 19 of the Catechism. What is the misery of man's fallen condition? By their fall, all mankind lost fellowship with God and brought his anger and curse on themselves. They are therefore subject to all the miseries of this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. You see what that says? What did we lose? Fellowship. We lost relationship, we lost union and communion with God who is life. And from that comes all the miseries and troubles of this life and comes death itself. And so for there to be happiness, something obviously must be done about that sin and death. For there to be any happiness, there must be life. Back to the end of verse 19. Look at it. This could be a whole sermon. This maybe should be the whole sermon. This may be the main idea of the text. This is the gospel, Jesus says. Because I live, you also will live. That's the gospel. Seven words. And your present and future happiness is bound up entirely in that. This whole point is about the happiness that is to be found in God's presence, I hope you're not getting tired of Psalm 16 yet because I'm going to keep shoving it down your throat because I'm desperate to know and experience its truth. Happiness, verse 9. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Why? Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That is, you will not let me die, ultimately. And now, of course, that does apply to us. But only because it first ultimately applies to Jesus Christ, to his death and resurrection. Because I live, you also will live. And he's saying that, he's saying this to them right after he's told them he's about to die. This is why he's just washed their feet to show them what he is about to do. Not physically cleanse some filthy feet from dirt, but spiritually cleanse some filthy souls from sin. And he could only do that by taking on that filthy sin himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. This is the gospel. And you will not find happiness apart from this. If you are here today and you are not in Christ, this is what you most need to hear. This is the part that you need to pay attention to. You are a sinner and your sin separates you from the holy God in whom is found happiness. And your only hope of salvation, your only hope of the presence of this holy God is to repent of your sin, to turn away from that sin, and to believe, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. This one who came to offer himself in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. This Jesus dies so that we, can live. This Jesus rises again so that we can live. You will find no happiness within. You will find no happiness in your sin. You will find no happiness in yourself. You will find it only in the Christ who dies for that sin to give life to that self. And this is the only way that anyone can experience the privilege of the presence of God. And why would we want to uh, experience the presence of God? Well, verse 11 of Psalm 16. I can't tell you how often I am thinking of this verse and seeking after and pursuing this verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's happiness. True, eternal, full happiness. And it is found only in the presence of the God of love and life who offers to make his home in us and with us if we come to him through Christ. Pursue your happiness here in him, in God's very presence. And that's, that's the big main idea. But that does raise another important question. How? How do we do this? Jesus has said that he is departing but that he will come to them. He has said that there is a sense in which he is going to be absent, but another sense in which he is going to be very much present. And so the question is, if true happiness is found only in God's presence, well, how is God's presence found? Point number two. Pursue God's presence by God's Spirit. This is the how. This one will be short and serve to set us up for next week. Look back at verse 18 again. Jesus says, I will come to you. And so the question is, well, what does he mean there? How will he come to them and to us? And let me admit up front that this is somewhat debated. There are, there are three possibilities. One is that Jesus is comforting them with the promise of his return at the end of the age, his, his second coming. And I just don't see how that one is, is likely here. Remember, our context is comfort. It seems unlikely that Jesus is comforting the disciples at that moment, saying something like, Hey, don't worry, I'm leaving. You're all going to suffer and die for me. But don't worry, I'll come back 2,000 years uh, after you're dead. Um, again, I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, the certain coming of Christ at the end is a great comfort. I just don't think that's what he's doing here. The second option is that he is talking about his resurrection and his subsequent appearances to his disciples. Now, this one very much is possible look again at verse 19 the world will see me no more but you will see me and he's talking to his disciples and we don't have a single record of any appearance of jesus to anyone except those who are his i guess you could say paul but he's making paul um his remember all the guys that are with paul are like oh what's going on there's a light i don't don't understand they don't don't see it so jesus isn't just arbitrarily appearing to the world or other people He's, he's appearing to his disciples Plus, the I live there is clearly the resurrection, and so then in verse 20, he would be saying that finally on meeting the resurrected Lord, they would fully understand uh, who he truly is as as God in the flesh. Again, that one is very much possible. That That one actually could be correct. I'm open to that, and I will not die on this hill, but I actually lean toward option number three. I have worded our point that we pursue God's presence by God's spirit, but again, Why spirit? Where's the spirit? If our text is verses 18 through 24, there is no naming of the spirit in that text. Or is there? I actually think that verse 18 is about the spirit. When Jesus says, I will come to you, I think that he's saying that I will come to you by and through uh, the spirit whom the Father is going to pour out upon you. Why do I think that? I think it's because of the context. I think it's because the Spirit is the whole point of this section. Let not your hearts be troubled. How? The Spirit. It's the Spirit. He's not saying, hey, all the circumstances are going to get better. Don't worry. No, he's saying, oh, you have the Spirit. I'm going to send to you another comforter. The Spirit is the comfort that Christ is providing to his troubled troubled disciples. I am leaving, but in another very real sense, and he's about to say a better sense, I am coming. I am going to be absent, but in another sense, I am very much going to be present by and through the Spirit. You need comfort, God will give to you another comforter. You need help, God will give to you another helper. Our comfort and happiness is found only in God's presence. God's presence is found only in and through God's Spirit. And so while the Spirit is not named in verses 18 through 24, he does bookend our passage. Look at verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's probably all that we're going to look at next week. We're just going to look at verse 26. Look up at verse 17. This is the bookends of our passage. The Father will give you another Helper to be with you forever. With you. That's presence. That's God's presence. Presence. That's Christ's presence through the Spirit. And so verse 19, we see Christ by the Spirit. Verse 20, we know who Christ truly and finally is by the Spirit, as we'll see in detail next week from verse 26. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments. He's not just talking about the disciples. He's talking about all of us. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, You see, all the precious promises of this passage are available to all of us by and in and through the Spirit. And so, actually, maybe it's quite possible that we could say both things are being touched upon here. Maybe the resurrection and specific appearances of Christ to the disciples are included. I think the primary sense of his, I will come to you, is his coming to them and all of us through the promised Holy Spirit who will be with us and in us. And if that's the case, it actually doesn't really change the point if it is primarily the resurrection. Either way, this makes who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does of the utmost eternal importance. If it is only in God's presence that there is fullness of joy, and the means to that presence is only the Holy Spirit, then we should be desperate to know him truly and fully as God himself, the one who teaches Christ to us, the one who glorifies Christ, the one who gives us new life in Christ, the one who makes us more and more like Christ, the one who is the very means through which we are able to commune with and relate to God himself. The spirit is who you need because he is how you get Christ. He is the means of our relationship with Christ. And so we're going to give a whole sermon to look at him in great detail next week. For now, all I want to do is to encourage you to begin simply to think about the Holy Spirit more intentionally and regularly. Maybe that starts with thinking about how little you think about the Holy Spirit. For some, maybe that starts with thinking about how wrongly you think about the Holy Spirit. We'll we'll, we'll consider some of the silliness that gets attributed to the Spirit um, next week. We are so often so spirit confused these days. But Christ is quite clear in these chapters about the Spirit's primary role. We've got to start with the understanding, though, that we have no access. No access to God. No access to the presence of God apart from the Spirit of God. Thus, for us to pursue that presence that is life and joy, we must pursue it by the Spirit. But still... Does that really answer the how question? What does that mean? How do I pursue God's presence? How do I pursue that through uh, the Spirit? Point number three. Pursue God's presence uh, through God's Word. We're going to look at this hard again next week. This is all going to be wrapped up together in verse 26. But it's verse 26 that also implies that Jesus is talking about his coming by the Spirit in verses 18 through 24. Now look at how our Lord emphatically emphasizes the importance of the word in this passage. And I also want you to look at how he does it. This may be one of the big things that we're missing. Let's start back again with verse 15. Jesus basically says the same thing four times in a short span. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Note in 17 that the spirit is the spirit of truth. This is who he is. He's the spirit of truth. Now look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Keep reading. Here's the promise. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. A couple of things there quickly. Again, Here again is the love that you need. We all want to be loved. What a promise that we can be loved by the creator God of the universe himself. Who are you, whose love are you pursuing? And where are you seeking that, that affirmation and that affection? That if you can get this love from this person, then you'll feel all right. Look, this is, this is the offer of the creator God himself loving you. And notice also what that love includes. I think this is neat. Jesus says he too will love us like father, like son. And it says he will manifest himself to us. Show himself, reveal himself. To And that's actually pretty neat. God loves us. What does God give to us as an expression of his love to us? He gives us a fuller revelation of himself to us. And if we're not that excited about that, it's because we do not yet truly know him as the all-glorious and good and beautiful and blessed one. He is the one who knowing is eternal life. He's the beautiful one of pleasure and joy. And what he says to us he says I will reveal to you more of that which is pleasure and joy and blessedness and life and peace. And so the love of God for us includes the further revelation of the God of all glory to us. Now look at verse 22. Judas, the other one. Poor poor that Judas, right? Oh, you're Judas. <laughs> Not that one, right? There's another Judas. But this is the only time we hear anything from Judas number 2. This is it. Verse 22. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? I think he's actually probably saying something there similar to what Jesus' brothers said back in chapter 7, verse 4. Where they had said to him, hey, Jesus, come on, just show yourself to the world. right? Reveal yourself and all your greatness and glory to, to, to everyone. Why, why, Judas, I think, is saying here, why just manifest yourself to us? Why not show yourself to the whole world, Jesus? And though Jesus doesn't seem to answer his question, I think that he does indirectly. Look at verse 23. Here's the third repetition of this one idea. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Fourth time, verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word words you know, what's the big deal with these commandments why it's so important to keep these words end of our text and the word that you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me and so these words the, the words of christ are the very words of god the commands of christ are the very commands of god and here's the basic idea and it's such an important one in our love confused culture obedience is the evidence of love that simple obedience is the evidence of Not that obedience is love, but that love results in obedience. Love will reveal itself in obedience. Now, to be clear, as we always need to on this point, Jesus is not saying, obey me and I will love you and save you. He is saying, I will love you and save you, and the result will necessarily be your love for me, expressed increasingly in obedience to me. Why is that? Basic idea. Obedience is the evidence of love. Why is that true? What does obedience, what does keeping his word have to do with love? We, we so divorce love and law these days that we struggle to comprehend this. But it's not complicated. It's actually quite logical and reasonable and beautiful. Again, consider who God is. He is the creator of and king. He is Lord over all, the one who is all-powerful and all-sovereign, but also the one who is all-wise and all-good and all-love. God is love. We had a commentator this week, an old commentator, who said that is the most uh, provocative statement ever written by the pen of man. God is love. That was so foreign 2,000 years ago uh, when this was first written to all the cultures surrounding that. God is love, and thus anything That this God says and reveals will be an expression of all that he is in all of his sovereignty and power, his wisdom and his goodness and his love. When I am being a good father, which is at least some of the time I hope, and I set rules for my children and then when I discipline them, when they willfully break those rules, it should be because I love them. No, four-year-old Tessa, you cannot go running blindly across Queens Boulevard by yourself. That's a bad idea. No, 10-month-old Vera, you cannot go sticking your fingers in light sockets and chewing on power cords. Am I telling that just because I'm mean? Because I've got the power and the authority. I'm going to exercise that authority to make myself feel good about being big and strong and, and powerful. No, it's hopefully because I love them and that I exist to seek their good. I have the position of authority, I have the position of power, but it's not for me and my own fulfillment, my own glory. It's to use those things to seek and to pursue their good. Running across the boulevard of death will likely probably be death. Chewing on electrical cords is bad. And so because I love them and I want their good, I speak words to them, I give commands to them, and then I correct them when they disobey those commands because I hopefully know a little bit more about how life works in this world than they do, and I want them to thrive and to survive and find great good in this life. Now, if that's the case for me as a very imperfect father, how much more than God, our Father, who created this world? He has graciously given to us his law, his word, and it is good, and it is always for our good. And so, Just like a child who strikes his parent or screams at his parent or looks his parent in the eyes when told to do something and says no or ignores the parent and disobeys the parent, that is not an expression of love. That's an expression of of selfishness and of autonomy, ultimately of hatred. Parents, please, please, your children desperately need you to teach and train them that there is an authority in this world and that they are not it. Love them. Love them. And discipline them teach them to honor god and keep his word by teaching them to honor you and keep your word but though there is nothing that grates more on my nerves than a willfully and flagrantly disobedient child and a parent refusing to correct that child it's infinitely worse when we when i willfully and flagrantly disobey god and reject his good word it is an expression of our disregard And lingering hatred and distrust of him. This is why sin is so serious. And this is why obedience is an expression of love. This is what faith is. Faith. I'm now in faith by the grace of God. I'm now seeing that everything that God is and that everything God says to me and promises to me is better than anything else that I can find in myself or pursue myself. I'm believing that he is good and that all that he says is good. And so one of the ways that I express love to him is, is seeing that, oh, I see that you're God. I see that you know better than I do, that you've promised that you're working for my good, that you are good. And so I'm going to seek to listen to you and trust you and obey you. That, that, that honors him. That gives him glory. That draws attention to how good he is because I'm saying all these things Aren't as good as him, and I'm going to listen to him, and that brings him glory and honor, and expresses my growing love uh, by grace uh, in for him. So we we love him by seeing his infinite worth and beauty and goodness, and responding to his word accordingly. Keeping God's word is evidence of loving God's son, and so one of the main simple things that you need to hear. I think we know this, but we don't really believe it. You will find no happiness. In disobedience, you won't. You can pursue all the sin, uh, all that you want, and you can get all these things uh, that the world promises you and tells you are going to give you life and happiness and all these things, and it won't happen. Now, again, let me be clear, none of us do this perfectly. None of us are keeping God's word perfectly. That's not what we're talking about here. But are you just hearing the word? Are you just simply sitting there right now, like, I wish you would hurry up so I could get home to watch the bills game or whatever whatever it is that's coming up uh next Um, are, are you hearing that word only or are you hearing and seeking to heed that word in christ this will increasingly be the the pattern and the progression of our lives oh he's good oh he has said this very clearly oh i want to keep that word by listening to him and following him and living in light of that word And that's just part of the reason why we can only pursue God's presence through God's word. Because again, it's no mere word. It is a living and active word. As we're going to see next week, it is the word breathed out by God, breathed out by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, illuminated and implied to our hearts by the Spirit of God. This word is the means through which God saves us and sanctifies us, preserves us, and is present with us. This, uh, the Word, is the how of practicing and pursuing the presence of God. It is only through His Word, the Spirit's Word. One of the main things I want us to get is that this, this is how the Spirit works. There is no divorcing of the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit works through this. This is His Word, and He works and operates through that Word. And there's just so much more uh, to responding to that word than just reading it and being done with it. Right? I get so depressed when I read like, all the statistics about Christians and how much they read the Bible. That's just reading it. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about here. So much of our application becomes little more than, hey, read the Bible more. And we kind of know that we should, but we don't really know why, and we kind of feel guilty that we don't. But again, we're not, we don't really know why, so we're not that all that motivated uh, to do it. So so much of our spiritual life, what we strangely call quiet time, not helpful, or devotions, that's not terrible. But for many of us, it consists in little more than begrudgingly reading for a minute or two, throwing up a quick prayer because we know that we should, and then getting on to our real lives and the things that we really want to do, the things that we really enjoy. And so the change probably needs to start with our why. Why read your Bible more? And what are you after? What are you after in the reading of your Bible? Maybe a simple uh, way to start would be to stop thinking of it as just reading your Bible. Maybe point number one. Maybe we need to start thinking a little bit more in terms of how those who have gone before us often thought in, in pursuing the presence of God. Or in seeking communion with God himself. Again, we know well what we're saved from. We are seeking to better understand what we're saved for. And we are saved for God himself, saved for communion with him, to be with him and enjoy him, and in so doing, become more and more like him. God has promised that he's forming us into the image of his son, the only perfect person, the one who is full of joy and pleasure forevermore. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't doesn't being more like Jesus, perfect joy, perfect happiness, doesn't that sound wonderful? That's happiness. I want that. And so I want to live in accordance with that desire and pursue that more and more zealously. Maybe that should be our goal for the new year. What are you pursuing? Make it happiness in God himself. And then pursue that as if you actually believed that there was infinite and eternal joy that is offered to you in him. And so that's, I mean, your application, that's your application. It's, it's simple. It's, it's pursue the presence of God. Seems simple, right? How? By the Spirit through the Word. Try by starting to think more specifically of your time uh, in the Scripture and prayer as your pursuit of God Himself. So as you enter into that time, one of the things I'm doing lately, is I'm, I'm trying to do that more in, intentionally. I, kinda, I picked this up from Flavel uh, to some degree. Begin to do it by considering first the Spirit, starting with a, a simple prayer, that acknowledgement to the Lord. Father, I am entering into your presence. Father, I know that you are with me. I know that I cannot stand before you and commune with you apart from your spirit. I believe in that Holy Spirit. Help me believe in that Holy Spirit. Help me to hear your word and to keep your word and to know you and love you. And then I begin to spend some time in the scriptures and then intentionally to read it for what it is. God himself present with me and speaking to me. Why does God have me at the end of Genesis this morning uh, reading about Joseph and reading about God's sovereignty and reading about uh, God bringing uh, Joseph into this situation and sending them ahead so that he could save his people? What is God saying to me through that word, and how does it apply to me? And so first, we need to more intentionally pursue God in our set times of Scripture, meditation, and prayer. Second... More intentionally pursue God and realize his presence in your day-to-day life. Again, this is, this is the, the meditation. Consider adopting the practice of regularly considering your present circumstances in light of the present Christ. Consider your present circumstances in light of the present Christ. Ask yourself, how would I respond to this circumstance if I really believed that Christ himself was in me? Hey, you're going to encounter a difficult person today. It might be me. You're going to have some interaction with someone that really frustrates you. Ask yourself, how would you respond to this difficult person in light of the truth that Christ is in you and that you are in him? Same for traffic, health problems, small, irritating daily frustrations. Sometimes I just wake up grumpy. I I don't know why that is. I just wake up grumpy. I don't get to stay like that. My first main goal is to get my heart right with the Lord and to get my heart happy in Him before I enter into interacting with my wife and my kids. I cannot take my abstract, I can't explain grumpiness and then pour that upon them and punish them for me just randomly being grumpy. I need to get my heart right with the Lord. So what does Christ in me have to say to me, tiredly now going down to need to uh, feed my kids breakfast and to read God's Word Uh, with them. Consider Christ present with you in all of your present circumstances. Consider what it would look like to respond as if Christ was in you. And your third application is simply get help. Get help. Join a small group. Announcement to come. Plug. We'll talk about it in a second. But, but, whether it's a small group or whether it's another person, listen, we're not meant to. And we cannot do this by ourselves. That was never Uh, the design. The pursuit of God is meant to be a corporate affair. So pursue him more intentionally in reorienting your mind and your time in the word as pursuing his presence and seeking to more and more enjoy him. That's, That's what I'm after. I want to enjoy the Lord. I run because I enjoy it. I watch sports because I enjoy it. I spend time with my girls because I enjoy it. I read because I enjoy it. Why are you spending time with the Lord? I want to enjoy my time with the Lord. So pursue that time. uh, Pursue, regularly consider your present circumstances in light of the present Christ and in some way get help. Church, let us pursue him together. Let us pursue our happiness in Christ by the Spirit through the word together in 2023. Your happiness, true ultimate happiness is only found in him. Let me close you with a word of prayer. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We have just seen and heard that our only access to you is by the work of Christ applied uh, to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would increase our understanding of of who he is and what he does. I pray that you would help me as I study this week and prepare to uh, teach uh, in more detail on the Holy Spirit and and his work next week. Um, Father, I desperately need your help. But Father, each and every single one of us, as we get ready to leave this place and enter into our week and into life, a life uh, so often uh, full of trouble, a life where uh, trouble is almost always present, Father, remind us that you are always present. Remind us that you are always with us, that if we are believers by your grace, that you are in us. And so, Father, teach us and lead us and encourage us and give us the passion and the desire to pursue our life and our joy and our peace and our happiness, first and foremost, in you. Father, I pray that uh, time spent with you uh, in your word and meditation and prayer for every single one of us this week would be increasingly sweet. I pray that we would increasingly desire to hear from you through your word and to realize the privilege that we have of speaking to you uh, in prayer. Father, I pray um, that you would help us as we face those difficult things that come, uh, help us to face them as your children and dwelt by you who exist to glorify and honor you in all that we do and and how we respond to all of these situations. Father, I pray that we would increasingly become a church this year who loves one another well and knows one another and and cares for one another. Whatever the means through which that that needs to happen, I pray that you would guide and direct us. I pray that the small groups could be a a little step in in getting your people uh, together so that we can better and better uh, pursue our happiness in you together. Father, these are all big asks and big things. Father, we cannot do them by ourselves. And so we ask for your help. We believe in your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.